Good to be with you this morning. Man, can we just thank Mike, uh, our serving elder that was here hosting this morning for that word of encouragement. Mike uh, is such an incredible uh, servant in this community, and man, we need to get on his level. Whatever he had for breakfast is what we need to be eating for breakfast. I'm telling you, like, but that's genuinely the hearts of this community and leadership. That's the quality of character that you're going to find as you meet others around here. There are people who are passionate followers of Christ who are fully devoted, just like we're talking about in this series. And just as he was prompting us into a deeper devotion, uh, so the word will do the same this morning. Let's open at the First Chronicles uh, chapter 21. First Chronicles 21, not a place we frequently go, but we'll be there this morning. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and one of the ushers will pass one to you so that you can follow along. We're going to be going a couple different places in the scriptures. We're continuing our series, True Wealth. The first week we learned that, you know, laying hold of the life that is truly life means living rich toward God, not storing up and hoarding for ourselves, but freely sharing and giving what we have for a greater purpose beyond ourselves. And last week I asked the question, well, how much is that? How much is it that we're supposed to give if we're not storing up, if we're sharing what God has blessed us with? And and through a study in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we really surmise that there is no law. There is no clear standard or rule that I could give to you and dictate to you to say, okay, just give this amount and you're all good with God and then you can do whatever you want with the rest of it. No, instead what we found were spiritual principles to guide us in our own giving as we seek the Lord, as we seek to find out what am I responsible to do. And we looked at the tithe and how the regularity of their giving, it formed their hearts, it trained their hearts to revere the Lord always in the midst of considering their resources. So are we giving with regularity in such a way that our hearts are being trained? In the first fruits offering, we saw how the Israelites were called to give their first and their best, not their leftovers to God. So are we giving our first and best? In the rebuke of Nehemiah and Haggai, we found that the Israelites at that time were giving their priority to their own house, not God's. So we were challenged to think, how can we give God's house priority and not just concern ourselves with our own matters? But still, the question I think we're left with is, how much? These are fine spiritual principles, but what does it actually boil down to? What does it actually mean for the practicality of our lives? How much should I give so that God's house is the priority, so that I'm giving my first and best. How much giving should I give to have my heart trained with regularity to revere the Lord above it all? To find the answer to those questions, I want to turn to an episode in the Old Testament concerning King David right here, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, to give you a little context because we're going to be picking up in verse 21. As we turn here in the early part of the chapter... King David has actually had his heart tempted and incited by Satan to take up the census of his forces, of, of the armies of Israel. He's a great king. He's developed, you know, the nation. He's got all these warriors. So he says, I'm going to take a census. I'm going to count them up. And it seems benign to us because we have a census in our country. You know, we count all the people. So we think, what's the big deal? But this was an offense to God. God, God was displeased with this because this is like the national equivalent of somebody like staring at themselves flexing in the mirror. You know, like, that's just, that's just offensive, you know? No one, no one wants to see anybody doing that, and that's essentially what David was doing. He's counting up his forces, thinking, I'm so strong, I'm so powerful. And God says, well, if you're going to rely on your own strength, 
If you're going to be driven by your own pride, I'm going to cut your knees out from underneath you, and I'm going to send a plague upon the people. When David discovers the error of his ways, he takes responsibility for the census, and he's directed to make amends by building an altar on this threshing floor that's owned by another individual, Arona the Jebusite. He's told to go acquire that land and build the altar. And, and so we're going to see this exchange that goes on between these two individuals, King David and Arona. And what's most interesting is the dialogue, what David says, what his heart is conveying in what he does in this episode. Okay, verse 21. It says, David approached, and when Arona looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. So this is the land that David's been told to buy and build the altar on. David said to him, let me have the site of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people that was caused by the census may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. Arona said to David, take it. Let my Lord, the king, you know, David's a king, do whatever pleases him. Look, I'll give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I'll give all this. But King David replied to Arona, no, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David paid Arona 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. You know, i got to say, at first glance, David plays the fool. I mean, from a worldly perspective, he's no Warren Buffett. I mean, this guy has an opportunity. He can essentially kill three birds with exactly zero stones, all right? He, he, can, he can, you know, make amends to God by having the land, right? He can pay exactly zero dollars for it, and then he gets to inherit this plot that's worth 15 pounds of gold. If David were a savvy businessman, he should take it. But David's not a businessman. He's not driven by just the bottom line. In the Bible, he's called a man after God's own heart. And don't you see it? And what he says in verse 24, I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. I'm not generous to God through association, is essentially what David is saying. You know, if you give that to me, and then I'm the pass-through person who gives it to God, it's you that gave it. It's you that sacrificed. It's you that did something. If it doesn't cost me something, it doesn't matter. Like all y'all out there who re-gift gift cards that you receive from someone else, you know who you are. What a dirty trick. What is that worth to you when I get re-gifted through you someone else's gift card that was supposed to go to you? And I can tell. I can see how beat up that gift card is. I can see the smudges on it. I can see the things delaminating and coming apart. That's a pass-through gift. If it didn't cost you anything, it doesn't matter to you. What value does it have? So David here manufactures a cost where there was none just so that the sacrifice and altar would have value so that it would mean something so that it would matter. This behavior on the part of David 
contrast with the behavior of God's people in the many generations that would follow. As they would make sacrifices to God and as they would go about it, cutting costs and corners every which way they possibly could. That's what you see all throughout Israel's history. Every time they're going to do something for God, it doesn't look like what David just did. They're going, oh man, how can I kind of figure this out where I can do the God thing, but I can make sure it doesn't cost me all that much. How does God respond to that sort of behavior, the inverse of David? Well, let's look at Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 6. The verses will be on the screen. God's responding to a generation that cuts, cut, cuts corners and costs in their sacrifices to him. God responds, verse 6, A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor like a human being. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, oh, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Cursed is the cheat, God says. They have good animals to offer, but they choose to skirt around that and give me the lame and the diseased and the blind. But hey, they're the shrewd ones, right? I mean, God is still getting his sacrifice. We're still fulfilling the commands and the regulations. And, you know, God's getting something out of it, not nothing. And, and you know, we got to get rid of these lame and diseased animals anyway. So, you know, this is the ultimate. We're going to kill three birds with a single stone, right? And that rationalization that they must have had, well, giving something to God. Giving something is better than nothing, right? And God answers with a very clear no. Giving something is not always better than giving nothing. What they are giving compared to their means is actually insulting to God. And here's the problem, and it's twofold. I mean, right off the bat, you know, the hearts that think this behavior is acceptable, there's something wrong with those hearts, right? That's part of the problem. What's going on with these guys that they think they can get away with it? They couldn't get away with it with a human governor, he says. A person wouldn't accept this, but you think, I'm not real or something? 
you know, that I'm going to accept this. So, so there's a problem with the hearts of the givers. But there's another problem. What that gift, the cost of the gift, is saying to the rest of the world. Verse 11, God is concerned with his name. He says it's to be great from where the sun rises to where it sets. All the nations are supposed to know me. They're supposed to be giving me these offerings of pure incense. Right? Verse 14, he says it again. I am a great king. My name is to be feared, but you have profaned it with your offerings. You've actually stained my reputation. You soiled my name. Right? You're not lifting me up. You're not magnifying me through your example. You're actually getting in the way. You're obscuring me. Because the cost of the gift reflects the heart of the giver, yes. But it also reflects the value of the one to whom it is given. And God is saying, is this what I'm worth? Is this what I'm worth in your hearts? These blind and diseased animals, this garbage, this throwaway trash. What do you think others will think who are making judgments about me through your example? If the nations are looking at you like you're my people, I'm your God, and everybody's making a value assessment about me through you, what do you think they're going to think when they see you offering these animals? They're going to conclude that I don't have much value to you, so why should I have much value to them? The same could be asked of us. What if outsiders could see what you and I spend our money on? What would they conclude about what we value? If they just had access to your bank records, just printed everything out, saw the ratio of I spend this much here, this much there, this is what I do with my discretionary income, what would they conclude about what you value if they could see where your money's going? You know, you got all these neighbors maybe, you know, and you, and you want to be a, a minister to them, you want to witness to them, they know you're a Christian, they know you're in church. What if those neighbors could see what you spend your money on? What would they conclude about what you've been communicating to them all these years, where they say, wow, all that preaching and God talk, I can see it's really important to you. I'm sure I should really join in with what you're doing because it's so valuable. You know, what, what about our kids? You know, maybe you've got kids that are growing up, they're, you know, being critical of the church, they're trying to sort through their own faith, and here you're telling them, hey, you got to believe, you got to be at church, you got to do this, you got to do that. What if they could see how you spend your resources? What would they conclude about the value of your faith, of the faith that you want for them, from how you are utilizing the resources that God has given you? What does your giving, what does my giving speak about God's value to us? Time and time again, the Bible is clear. If it costs nothing, it means nothing. If it costs nothing, it means nothing. James chapter 2, verse 14. James is talking about faith here. And you're going to see very quickly, if it costs nothing, it doesn't mean much. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Here's the example. Let's play this out in real life. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, if you talk, words, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed. Yeah, that's going to make them real warm, your sentiments. So if you say that, but you do nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, it's dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. You know, each one has their own. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that 
and shuddered. You believe? You got faith? Even the demons believe. You know, how do you believe? What are you doing with that? How does that affect your life? And if you want the litmus test, you want the quality control test, let's see. There's a brother or sister in need. They have material needs. Do you respond? Do you do something with that? Are you sacrificial? Do you give of yourself to support them? If you don't, if there's no cost, then how is this faith real any longer? How do we know it even means anything? You can say it means something, but that's just empty words. Don't think it's just James. Some people think only James talks that way. Look at John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. God told us he loves us. Nope, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is how we know what love is. Something real. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now this is our pattern, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Man, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, but if we don't do what? Materially lay down our lives for each other, then how can the love of God actually be in us? Affecting us, influencing us, words, talk. Man, that's cheap. It's got to be in actions and in truth. If it costs us nothing, guys, it means nothing. Don't you see this in the parable of the Good Samaritan? In the parable of the Good Samaritan, you got the guy beat up, left for dead on the side of the road, right? And uh, there's the priest and the Levite. There's the two really religious people. And, and, and what do they do? They see the individual left for dead, and they walk on the other side of the road. I'm sure they have the rationalizations. They have something very important. They're going to go preach a sermon on loving their neighbor, and they're late. You know, but that's the irony of it. These are the guys who are talking and teaching and preaching, and they're saying over and over again, this is how you're supposed to behave. This is how you're supposed to behave, and they're not doing anything whatsoever. It costs them nothing, and it means nothing to them. And then there's a Samaritan that comes along, and this is the person who's like nation betrayer, political opposite heathen but jesus picks this person out and says we're just going to look at what they do not what they say not what they represent what do they do they bandage up the wounds place the person on their donkey walk them all the way to the inn, pay the innkeeper for their stay and give some extra money so that any other cost can be absorbed by this individual and then that person becomes the standard for christian behavior for us on a daily basis. That shows value. The Good Samaritan had value for that human life. And it cost them something because they believed in that value. The same way the sacrifice of David demonstrated value. It cost him something to value God. In every case where love is validated, devotion is validated in the Scriptures, it cost them something. It cost David something. It cost the Good Samaritan something. It cost Jesus something, for crying out loud. And that was the proof of love. I have a confession to make. For years I've been praying to avoid the cost. I've been praying for something free, something very specific, 
But something free for us as Branch is sending to Meach. I've been praying for a free facility since the early days, 12 plus years. You see, I hate the idea that churches try to validate themselves with a facility because a building is a container for what really matters, what God is doing among a people. So what does it matter if we dress up a fine facility, it's got all the fixings for us, and we've got all these dead hearts inside of it? What would that be worth, right? So we've not focused on a building for that reason, but now we're running out of space to accommodate what God is doing among the people, specifically, you know, importantly, the next generation. So we're beginning to look at where this might take us, where we would need to go possibly in the next few years. The cost would be something equivalent to this. I'm going to put it on the screens. Right now, we spend about $361,000 a year on our facility costs. Some people think the senior center is free because it's a public space. It is not free. Um, it's free for the senior citizens, but we're part of helping that remain free because we're paying a good rent, and we're also paying for rent, the warehouse space where the young people are meeting right now across the street. If we were to expand and open up more space for kids, for youth, for individuals to be a part of this fellowship, we've estimated that it would cost around double, $732,000 a year. And that's probably coming up in the next couple of years because our lease is up at the warehouse space in two years. We could do less. We could consolidate into a facility for less money, but we wouldn't open up any additional space. It would just be so that we have some cool creature comforts. And if that's the underlying reason we're doing it, no thank you. So the only reason we'd be doing it in the first place is because we're opening up additional ministry opportunities. But I'll tell you, I have prayed to avoid that, that cost increase, or any cost at all. Now why is that? It's not for me. I want you, I want you to know that. It's not because it's not I want to avoid my personal responsibility in it. You know, I know I need integrity as a pastor. I need integrity as a Christian. If I'm going to lead others into it, i got to do it myself. And you know what? I'm willing to do it. I'll sign at the dotted line. But I don't want to impose on anyone else. You know, if, if I'm preaching from God's Word, I'll impose. You know, I don't have a problem, you know, offending somebody when it happens. I'm not going out of my way to try to offend people. But if it says it in God's Word, it says it in God's Word, I can stand on that. But beyond that, I don't want to impose. That's not my personality. Guys, I'm the guy, you know, you go to a restaurant, you order the food, and like the soup shows up with a dead rat in it. And I'm like, well, I'll eat around it. You know? And my wife's like, what? That thing is like two degrees cooler than it should be. Send it back. You get your money's worth. And I'm like, no, you know, it kind of adds something to the broth, you know? That's me, because I just don't want to impose. Right? I don't want to impose on anybody any additional cause. I say, well, wouldn't it just be magnificent if God just blessed us with something free? You know, to just validate that we're focused on the things that really matter in this community. And I can almost see how it would work out because I've played it out in my imagination, my prayer imagination, many, many times. You know, there are dozens of facilities owned by churches in HB that are practically empty right now on this Sunday morning. They're already zoned for religious assembly. They already have enough parking and all the stuff that you have to care about when you start thinking about this stuff. You know, with denominational decline and our vitality, we could renew one of these historical sacred spaces. And many of these facilities are dilapidated, but they're completely debt-free. And we even met one last year. We met a community just like this. We met with their leadership. Ten people. The church is ten people in a building that seats 400. In our city. And they have a second building that's empty all the time that also seats like another 400. 
and there are 10 people in it, and we could renovate and fill it and build for the future with them. We could renew a legacy there. Guess what? They won't have it. But this is the irony of it. The irony is, the same way I don't want the cost of buying, they don't want the cost of giving it away. We're the same. You know, we're Christians doing this thing. We're a body of believers. We don't want the cost of buying, and we want to avoid that. And they're believers. They're brothers and sisters in the city. And they built this thing, and their parents built this thing. And they don't want the cost of giving it away. We're exactly the same. What they built, they can't get rid of. It's a, it's a cautionary tale for us. So when we're down to 10 people, and we've got a building paid off, I just want you to remind me. Okay, when it's me, and I'm 81 years old, and I'm gripping onto the pulpit, metaphorically and literally because it's holding me up. And, you know, the nine of you are still with us. Remind me when there's a church of 500 that is vital, it's time to let it go. It's time to give it up. And that's exactly it, though, guys. I've wanted a future without cost and to rob us of the opportunity to give. But what if we're supposed to buy, to build, and at full cost... And then we're also supposed to build it to give it away at some point. That we're supposed to absorb the cost on the front end by making it a reality in the first place. And then we become the fulfillment of the prayer that I've been praying for another church to live. That we end up giving it away to somebody else. And wouldn't that be a double portion of a blessing for us? Man, we got to become what we're praying for instead of waiting for someone else to get the plot. Why have I longed... For 12 plus years, at least in this category, for our story to cost us nothing. I have decided personally that I will not give a sacrifice or offering to the Lord that has cost me nothing. I will give to those in need. I will give to the ministry what reflects the greatness of our King. And we have a choice. We have a choice too. Either we will too or we won't. And I want to tell one more story before our time is up, and it's a cautionary tale, of course, of regret where we didn't, we didn't fulfill the cost. I want to tell you about Common Ground, one of our ministry partners doing unbelievable work in the Oakview neighborhood just down the street, mentoring youth in Christ. In our early days, our first campaign was to lease a facility, not for us, for that nonprofit. And we leased a warehouse space. It was great until the building owner sold it. And they raised it to the ground and then built a kinder care facility. You can see it off Beach and Slater. You can drive down Beach Boulevard and see it any day you want. This is a real story. This is about what's really going on in your city, where you're located, where ministry is taking place. And what happened was, overnight, Common Ground became homeless. Now, around that time, I was looking for a new house. I was looking to get my parents to move out here. They're here this morning just visiting. But I was looking for them to be here full time. So I'm looking for a plot of land with some room. So I do the search, and there's only a couple properties in all of Huntington that even have some land associated with them. One of the properties that comes up, it's in the Oakview community right across the street from the elementary school. It's got lots of land, undeveloped, but it's just a two-bedroom house. So it's not going to work out for me. You know, forget about it, log it away, move on with my life. My parents never move out here. But... About a year later, 
I am praying for common ground. It's late at night. I'm in bed. I just can't go to sleep. I'm thinking, God, what's the answer? What's the answer? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I fall asleep as I'm praying. And I have a dream. And it's like the movie where you just out of bed. And I'm like sweating. I'm like really hepped up because I had a vision of that house. I hadn't thought of that house in over a year, but I had a vision of that house. Common grounds in the house, and we've taken the land and developed it, and there's a skate park, and there's basketball hoops, and there's all this stuff. But I, at 3 a.m., I, I, I jump up, I go to the computer, I say, there's not a chance. The housing market, red hot, nothing stays on the market. This thing is not up here anymore. I, I, it, it's there. It's still in the market. Come to find out, it's been in the market for five years. It's been hung up in divorce court. This is just enough time for us to get all the pieces in play so that we can acquire this for common ground. And sure enough, we do some fundraising through common ground. Branches elders make a significant commitment. Individuals open up credit accounts, and we go to an auction with a number way higher than the starting bid. It was going to start at like 700000 We go, man, we're going to pay a million bucks for this place. And we're in the Zoom call. There's only one other person on the call who's bidding. Oh, this is in the back. This is ours. Right? Only one other person, we're here to take you down. We're building something for the kingdom of God. <laughs> 20 minutes into this bidding, we're north of a million dollars. 20 minutes goes by, boom. And we look at each other and we're just dumbfounded. You know, the house isn't worth this much. It's not worth this much. I guess with the valuation, how do you tell the donors? How do you justify this to people? Everybody's going to say, you paid what for what? But man, we can probably rally the churches. We can probably dig deep. Let's go another $50,000. I know we can do it. And then within one or two minutes, we're north of even that limit. And then the time ticks by, and the house is sold to the other bidder. And today, Common Ground remains without a facility. Still doing unbelievable work. Maybe the most unbelievable work they've ever done in their history, but without a home in the neighborhood which would have been a beacon of light right in the center of the neighborhood facing that elementary school. And what of the buyer in that house? It's just as run down as day one when he bought it, and it's been raided by DEA agents for criminal activity. The house that faces the elementary school. Now, others may feel different than me. I'm not speaking for them. I'm speaking for me. But that house was worth the price it went for. And it was worth far more than the price it went for. The irony here is that, ironically, the market kept going up, and it actually literally is worth much more than what it went for. But I'm saying in terms of kingdom value, from an impact standpoint, for Huntington Beach, for that neighborhood and ministry, that home was worth any price. That home was worth every price. And we, the church... The capital C Church of Huntington Beach, we had the money. We had the money. We didn't have it going into the auction, but we had the money. Believers in Huntington Beach getting together, you don't think we can afford a $3,000 measly a month mortgage for the impact that that would have had in that neighborhood to take some ground for the kingdom of God in this city? It's measly money. We had the money. You say, oh, I wasn't informed. Get informed about what God is doing in the city. This is where you're planted. This is where your ministry is. We need to be informed. We need to know what God is doing. We need to care about it and be invested because we had the money, but we didn't have the will. 
We didn't have the will to do it. And I don't care. You can, you can tie a bow on it. People say, well, God has a different plan. Quit it with the cliches. God has a different plan. Quit blaming God for the things that we're unwilling to do. God has a different plan. Is God's plan that that's a drug house facing that elementary school? Or that it would be a center raising up kids and transforming lives just like Common Ground is doing right now? Don't tell me that it's a different plan. That's the plan. That's the plan. Don't, don't you say God has a different plan. Tell that to the first generation of the Israelites who were taken to the edge of the promised land. And they chose not to go in. Why didn't they go in? Because they didn't want the cost. And, and I want to be Caleb and Joshua. I want to be the guy going, tearing clothes. You know, that's what they did. I'm not going to do that. But I'm there. I'm like, I'm right there, guys. I want to be at the edge of the promised land saying, you know how good it is in there? God brought us all the way here. His plan is for us to enter. And he's with us. And if he's with us, you don't think we can take this land? We can do it. We can do it. And they said, no, we don't want to do it because we don't want the cost. And then every single one of them died in the wilderness. I don't want to die in the desert. I want to go into the land. What does that money that went ungiven even mean to us today? It's just more in the account. Or it was converted into goods stored up for the future. But what would it have meant to the kingdom? There is no dollar amount that you could have placed on that house. I do have good news to report. I mean, this last week, Common Ground did a one-day fundraiser with 24 other youth-oriented nonprofits in Orange County called Igniting Potential. Their goal for the 24 hours was to raise $60,000. They raised $133,000. Not a single other organization in that group of 24 raised more. Common Ground raised the most of any youth-oriented nonprofit that day. But guys, it's going to cost more. It's going to cost more than that. A lot more than that. Our giving should cost us more than that. It should cost us something. It cost Jesus everything. That is our inspiration. That's our source. That's going to be our final thoughts for this morning. Would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8? Here, the Apostle Paul is stirring up the hearts of generosity in the church. They've made commitments to give to this fund for other churches. He's asking them to renew their commitments and he's citing Jesus and what they've received through Jesus as their reason for giving afresh, absorbing that cost. He says this, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. Since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, I mean, you guys are doing it all, but see that you also excel, like you can be excellent in this, in this grace, this gift of giving. It's a gift. It's something you can excel in, being a generous giver. He goes, I'm not commanding you. Just like I've been doing in this series, I'm not, this is what you're going to do, and here's where you're going to sign on the dotted line, and we're going to follow up with you, and this is the law, and I'm the dictator. No, I didn't give you a rule or a law. I'm not commanding you, he says, but I want to test the sincerity of your love. Is your faith real? Is your love real? It's got to cost you something if it matters. I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know, what's our source of this generosity? You know the grace, the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that though he was rich, being God, he deserved everything, yet for your sake he became poor. He gave his life on the cross so that you through his poverty might become rich. You're freed from your sin. You've got the inheritance of eternity. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Like, you wanted to. You were willing. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So as we're thinking about how much should we give, he's saying, excel, grow in the grace of giving in response to what you've been given in Christ. Don't let this be something that you're tiptoeing into. Be eager. Be willing. Be excited. Be enthusiastic. Be Joshua and Caleb. Man, we want to absorb the cost. We know it's in front of us. Be like David. You know, David said, I'm not going to give it if it costs me nothing. It has to cost me something because I care about it. You know, now you take up that same eagerness, that same willingness. And what's that going to translate to? You say, how much then? How much to express that? Well, don't be concerned with how much. Give according to what you have, not what you don't. Remember the situation that Jesus pointed out, the, the widow, the woman with two coins. They're at the temple courts, and all these people are dropping off these huge sums of money for their offerings. Everyone can see it. And then this lady walks in. She's got no money. She gives these two pennies, right? And Jesus points her out. Nobody else is here, but Jesus sees her and says, she gave the most because she gave what was costly. She gave out of her poverty. Guys, the last two weeks I've been asking, how much are we supposed to give? How much should we give? But the real question concerns not how much, not the amount, but how costly is it? That's the wrong question to ask how much. It's the right question to say, how costly is it going to be? That's when it has value. It may not look like much to the rest of the world. You may not be a, somebody of great means. But when God sees that you're giving from that place, that it costs you something, it matters. The same thing is true for those who are wealthy. Man, if, the, if somebody who's wealthy gives 100000 and it costs them nothing, that's worth the same thing as the leftovers of the poor. It doesn't have value. But when somebody who's rich gives something that is costly to them, it's valuable in the same way it's valuable that someone in poverty is also giving what costs something for them. So I say one person could take pride, you know, in meaningfully moving the needle in like a giving campaign like the one we saw this last week. Somebody gets to drop in some big money and it moves the needle. And they can feel like, wow, I did, and they can take pride in that. And somebody else can't. What costs them so much, man, it barely even moves it at all. And they can't feel any pride. But man, it's that heart that's sacrificing and willing to absorb that cost. That's the heart that's laying hold of the life that's truly life. That's what's going to make up the guts, the soul of this community in whatever container we end up finding ourselves in. So let's give with eagerness. Let's give with that willingness. Let's be ready to absorb the cost because it matters to us. Let's take the land. Now, would you join me in prayer this morning as we consider this message? I want you to bring before a couple questions before the Lord. I don't have an answer for you. I don't know the ins and outs of your life. 
But as you go before the Lord and as he leads you, I want you to ask him, what does the way I handle money say about what I value? You know, the fact that you give a dollar, but your means are such that that dollar is one that you need. That dollar can say a lot about where your heart is with the Lord. You give $100,000 and it could say nothing, depending on your means. You could be really worldly wise. You could be the savviest business person in the world and look how much I've gained. Look how much I've stored up. Look how smart I am. And you could be a fool in eternity because of the way that you manage that money, what it says about what you value. This is a dynamic answer for every single one of us. God sees the readout and he can reveal to us, man, I've been saying I value this a lot, but when it comes down to it, does it cost me anything? That's the second question. Is my giving costly? Is my giving costly? You know, that's how you'll know. Whether it's a little, whether it's a lot, based on the world standards, is it costly? Does it matter? Does it have meaning? I'm going to ask that we put those questions on the screen as we go into a time of prayer this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you pleading your grace. You have given us so much. You poured out so much through your son, Jesus Christ. The entire gospel is a message of grace. It's a gift, the gift of your life. You demonstrated your love. You demonstrated your love. And through the offering of you, Jesus, upon the cross, we're set free. We're given this inheritance and eternal life. We're given this family. We're, we're given the eyes to see what's really valuable. In the world, the only thing that's valuable is money. But we see the value that's beyond money. Thank you for that gift, Lord. So we pray for your grace in this conversation. Well, we know that we're not condemned, but we're invited into more. We're invited into what matters and to make what matters matter in our own life. So Lord, would you reveal to us what we value through the way that we're administrating and stewarding the resources that we've been blessed to receive? What does it speak of us? Maybe we think we are valuing this, but when we bring it before you in prayer, when we really think about it, there's a disconnect. Lord, be clear with us. Lord, is our giving costing us anything? Is there any sacrifice in it? Does it matter? If it doesn't cost us anything, it doesn't matter. Lord, we want to be those who want to absorb the cost, who are eager and willing. We want to be marked as those who excel in the grace of giving, the gift of giving. God, we want to be those who don't wait on someone else. Don't wait on you to do it for free when you put it in front of us that it's going to cost us something and you're giving us the opportunity for it to cost us something. We say yes. We don't lean back and wait. We step in and do what you've called us to do. That's what you did, Jesus. Would we follow your example? Just spend a few moments in prayer asking these questions before the Lord that he would lead you.